Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. And the thing we are thinking biblically about today is the phrase, wives, submit to your husbands. This is what we want to understand. And I want you to stick with me all the way to the end, because in this message, I'm even going to cover the topic biblically of when a wife should go against what her husband says, because I think we have a scriptural example of that, along with trying to really seriously take this idea of biblical submission and apply it into our marriages. Okay, so open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we have been dealing with one controversial subject after another on Sunday nights. We dealt with submission to government and when and how to rebel. Um, We dealt with um, the issue of slavery in the Bible and did a whole thing on that. Then we did submission to masters or, or, or employers and employees and that kind of submission. And now we're going to just get more controversial, probably the most controversial subject I've covered so far. Um, in, at least in First Peter, because all I seem to do is controversy on Sunday nights. <laughs> Submission to husbands <laughs> is coming up right now. So we're going to read through the passage. And um, I do think that as Christians, we should speak out on controversial issues. Because when, when uh, an issue, we're facing an issue where we're believers and we have a view that the world is upset about, we need all the more to be upfront about our view so we can impact the world because the world is wrong. They're wrong here and we want to help them. And the issue of submission and the issue of marriage um, for both the husband and the wife, the world does not like the husband's calling. The world does not like the wife's calling, either one. And it has wrecked marriages. Look at the results. Look at the results of the marrying for selfish reasons, marrying so, so I can be happy. And then they'll do this. And, and what, what will you do when this happens? Oh, you know, we'll work it out. And not really having sort of a biblical you know, foundation, man, it really hurts marriages and it causes all sorts of, all sorts of crazy difficulties. So if we love the world, um, the people in the world rather, then we're going to want to have an impact on them in a godly and biblical way. I mean, obviously I don't just want to make them have biblical marriages and yet they're not saved, (laughs) but I want to stand firmly upon the truth of God's word as it comes to marriage. So let's look at this first Peter chapter three, verse one and two, um, wives, likewise, Be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct uh, conduct accompanied by fear. Now, the Bible's perspective on wives is regularly misrepresented in, in, in our culture, in media, and it's constantly attacked. I mean, what will typically happen is one of two things that I hear. When the issue of marriage in the Bible comes up, either um, critics of the Bible will attack the Bible with a distorted version of submission. This like ugly, icky, oppressive, and devaluing concept of submission. And this is, what they're attacking is something that Christians would attack as well. This is not something we believe in. This is not what the Bible teaches. But then when I hear the rest of the time is I hear pastors and the issue of of marriage comes up and they just spend their whole Bible study backpedaling away from the issue instead of teaching it. Like the whole time they're like, well, you know, submit, you know, really, and they just, and they're just so worried that the world will think we are the, the image that the haters have painted that they, they basically spend their whole time saying, we're not that hateful image. We're not the hateful image, but I don't think that that equips people to actually be married very well. 
it's mostly like we're dealing with politics instead of marriage. So what I want to do is I, I'm not going to actually be able to do this as skillfully as a, as a bride would. Actually, older ladies, you're the ones that are called to actually teach the younger women about this principle, about how it actually works in real life. But what I am called to do and capable of doing is saying, here's what the Bible says about it. So when it gets to like the real nuts and bolts of like, what about in this scenario? What about in that scenario? I think that older godly women are the ones to run to and say, how do I do this? Um, but when it comes to the biblical principles in general, that's what we're focusing on today. So I hope that makes sense. And, and that's actually in uh, Titus. The older women are called to teach the younger women these things. <clears throat> so wives likewise submit. Now the whole context, the whole context of 1 Peter is submission. We learn to submit to government. We learn to submit to masters. Submission is a regular part of the Christian life. I should be submitting on a daily basis. Every single day I submit to government. I mean, when I put my trash cans on the curb on the right day, I mean, like I'm submitting to government. And people who just don't like submitting and have an issue with submission, they will have a huge issue with following Jesus. Because following Jesus is, is about submitting my every moment to the Lordship of Christ. Which means then... Anybody who he's called me to submit to, i got to submit to them now. And it's just how it is. Now, I find submission to be very liberating. I personally, now this might sound strange, but I personally prefer to be under someone else's authority rather than the guy in charge. It is much more free. <laughs> it's much more liberating. And I'm just like, just do my part. Da, da, da. And like, what if it's a bad call? Well, that's on him, not me. And I'm like, I don't have to worry about it, you know. Um, and I find it much more nerve-wracking to be the guy uh, making decisions. And because what if I make a bad one? Um, then then it's, on, it's on my head. But we are called in scripture to not only submit, we're called to submit to the needs and, and, and the, um, uh, the, the aid and help of others, the priorities of others above our own. Philippians 2 tells us that we are, all of us are called to put other people's needs above our own. Now that's part of submission. I'm putting your needs above my own. And this is, I think, what's meant in Ephesians 5.22 when it says submitting to one another. How there's like a mutual submission where Christians are basically submitting to each other constantly. There's a constant attitude of submission like, uh, no, what do you want to eat? I mean, it's like, hey, I'm just going to put your needs above my own. That's just going to be a regular thing because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. The enemy of this is pride. The enemy of this is selfishness. The enemy of this is, but I just want to do good for me. I want to do what's right for me. I need to take care of myself before I can take care of you. No, it's more like you need to get yourself right before you can get someone else help. <laughs> but you don't need to take care of yourself before you take care of someone else because basically you will find that all your needs get met and none of theirs. So I need to actually put their, their needs above my own. That's the biblical way. Now with that in mind, the idea of submission to a husband shouldn't be that big of a thing. In concept, I'm sure obviously it's, every marriage is difficult when it gets to actually doing it. But as far as the concept goes, it should make a lot of sense. Oh, okay. So I submit over here, I submit over here, I submit over there. And over in marriage, this is how it works. Wives in submission to their husbands. It is with this attitude of I submit to God in everything that it should not be a big deal. But yet it is. But let me just first establish the principle. So if you would, keep your place in 1 Peter 3. But... Turn with another one of your wonderful fingers that God has given you over to Ephesians 5.22. Ephesians 5.22. Now 5.21 is the one that says submitting to one another. So there's a context of mutual submission. But in the marriage relationship, 
there is there is a uh, a calling of God. This is not our opinions. This is what God has declared for the wife to submit to the husband. And so it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then in case you thought it was a typo, Colossians 3.18. Look at Colossians 3.18. Two books over from Ephesians. To your right. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Yeah. Unless it's changed. Verse, verse 18 of chapter 3 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, if you'll notice, two things are common in here. One is, wives are submitting to their own husbands. Uh, they're not required to submit to men in general. This, the scripture never says, women submit to men. As though by, by mere virtue of being a man, I have some authority over women that I run into or see walking on the street or something like that. Um, I have none whatsoever. In fact, this is just a call between you and your own husband. Um, so let's say that you're dating somebody. Um, they're not your husband. They do not have the husband role of, of you know, wives submit to your husband. They don't have that yet. They have not earned it yet. <laughs> they haven't made a claim on that right just yet. Uh, but, this is, but it does exist between the wife and her own husband. The other thing I see is that it is unto the Lord, and as is fitting in the Lord, God is in the mix here, and so it is unto the Lord. I'm supposed to submit to the husband as unto the Lord. So that if I, as, as, a, as a wife, am not submitting to my husband, I'm rebelling against God. That is, that's why it's such a big deal. Because it's ultimately not about your husband. It's not about that knucklehead. It's about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So turn back with me to 1 Peter 3. Now at this point, a lot of people will begin their backpedaling. <laughs> And the backpedaling goes something like this. Well, it's submit here only means respect. Wives, respect your husbands. And then they'll say, you know, wives, you're just supposed to. Now, it's true that the wife is supposed to respect her husband, offer him a sense of respect. And respect is good and respect is a calling on the wife. But it is not the same as this word submission here. The word means literally to rank yourself under this other person. To like rank yourself under this other person. Now in the military, this, this is easy to figure out what it means, right? I mean, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's your call. Okay, fine. And that's pretty much what it means. It means you're under the authority of this person. You are purposely, willfully, intentionally submitting to their role as leader and the decisions that they make. That's what this says. This is. Um, so it's a submission to the authority of the husband in the marriage. That's what it ideally represents. Now, this is also, it is an act that the wife does. It is not something that is done to her. There are those who try to, and I've, I've met guys like this because we have our domestic violence program here at the church, and I've met guys like this who try to use the Bible to abuse their wives. And I just use the Bible to abuse them <laughs> out of abusing their wives because this is a monumentally wicked thing to do. Um, notice this. When God tells wives how to behave, he tells wives how to husbands how their wives ought to behave. This is hugely important because one of the principles we're going to get here is a wife does this willfully, intentionally. She submits. She is not forced to submit. That's abuse. So God does not call a husband to make sure his wife is in submission. That's abusive. That's simply not a call on the husband. Um, so submission is not done to her, it is not done for her, and that rules out abuse. The husband, on this token, should not be obsessed with his wife's submission. 
So here I've got to say, this message is not for husbands. Sorry, guys. The message for us, yeah, bye. <laughs> the message for us is, is, is the message right after this about husbands, how you are to treat your wives. But this message is for the wife. God's saying, hey, wives, and he looks to you, and he kind of like, you know, says, he's not listening anyways, don't worry. And he tells you how he wants you to behave unto him as, a, as an honoring and worshiping thing to your Lord and God. Then he'll turn to the husbands and say how he wants you to behave. Now that is not to the wives. That's to the husbands. Because one of the keys of marriage is that you do your part without looking over your shoulder to see if they are doing their part. One of the hardest lessons and most liberating things in marriage is when you learn to be okay with them not doing their part and you'll still do yours. I mean, the hardest and most liberating thing. Easily. So, <clears throat> so it's to wives, not to husbands. Now, the, um, this means, however, that this is a passage that I would encourage ladies to make part of your regular, I mean, like memorize the verses that are to, written to you specifically. I memorize the scriptures that are to the husband. I don't have memorized the one to my wife because that wouldn't be healthy for me. <laughs> it's not about me making sure, you know. In fact, I've never opened the Bible, went to my wife and said, you know, it says here you're supposed to submit. I've never done that because I do consider that to be abuse. I don't, think that that's, um, I don't think that's what I'm called to do. And I'm not saying there's never a, any scenario where you could do that, but I haven't found one yet um, where I've done that to my bride. Um, even, even if I felt she was not in submission to me in some way, I just was like, it's not my job. She's not my child. She's my bride. And so, um, so if you would, keep your place there. Of course, we'll come back. But turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 again. And we'll look at verses 23 and 24. And it explains this submission role a little bit more. <clears throat> it explains why the role exists and like how it is supposed to take place. So Ephesians 5.23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And again, there's that qualifier, to their own husband. Uh, it, it's again, it's only between her and him. It's not between males and females. So, the Bible here says that the husband is the head of the wife. This language is offensive in America. It is. It's just offensive in America. But I think that you are in a wonderful place, wife, if you can say, my husband is my head. I think that that's a beautiful place that you're in. If you understand what it means biblically, and, you can, and your heart's happy with it and content with it, that that's actually a really healthy thing to be able to say. My husband is my head. But I've actually seen this verse read and things like oh, a wife turn around and look at her husband and be like, you're not my head. And I thought, such is the pain in your marriage. That this is offensive to you and you're not sure why. But because of the, the feminist movement in America going from something that was good and healthy to something that then like, couldn't find any more reasons to be around and just started making them up, <laughs> turning into something else, something monstrous, um, where it still has actually some really good points, but also some really weird things. Where there's anything that speaks of the husband as being the head of the wife is considered um, abuse. And, and it's like, it's basically like, to say that, you're a child molester now. I mean, it's like, this is just off, off the scale as far as being messed up. And, and I just look at that and go, okay, well, that means that us as biblical Christians, we need to plant our feet in the word and go, the husband is the head of the wife. That's what scripture says. And I trust the word of God. And I trust God that this is how marriage is supposed to work to glorify his name. And it's a beautiful thing, not an ugly thing. Now, it is not really possible for a marriage to have two heads. And some people think, you know, they'll go into marriage and say, well, what do you do 
what do you do when, um, when one person doesn't agree with the other person? I mean, just hypothetically. Let's suppose in the course of your marriage this happens once or twice. <laughs> that you don't agree on some issue that you're both pretty passionate about. Let's say how to discipline your children. Let's say where you're going to move and live. Let's say what church you're going to attend. Or whether you're going to go out to that party, that birthday party or not. Or you name it. You know, you name it. Whether you're going to buy that boat or not. You disagree on this issue. <laughs> Obviously, that's the husband that wants to buy the boat, right? <laughs> and... <laughs> without a doubt, right? Um, and, and, and in the middle of disagreeing, you sit there and you suddenly realize one of us has to actually win here. <laughs> one of us has to be the head. Now, I've heard it said that the one who runs the marriage is the one that is the meanest. And I thought, I'm sure that's true in some marriages, but not in a godly marriage. In a godly marriage, the one who makes that decision is the husband. That's what scripture teaches. Um, Now, I have met those husbands who I'm like, your wife is smart, your wife is wise, and you are the only time in her life where those two qualities were not present. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you're like, and he gets to make choices in in this, I mean, she would make better choices. But this is what the scripture teaches. And, I, and, and as much as I would, I would not have made it this way, but that is, that is to my own harm that I would have done it some other way. This is what the word of God has told us. This is how it ought to be done. It is not possible for the marriage to get along where they just go, well, he doesn't make the final choice. I don't make the final choice. We'll just figure it out as we go along. This will make for battles and wars instead of disagreements. This can be very damaging because it is just not possible. One of them will make more of the decisions than the other. It's just going to happen. Or what happens is this really unhealthy thing in marriage where it becomes my stuff and your stuff and the husband makes decisions over here with these issues and the wife makes decisions over here with these issues. And pretty soon, if it's about the kids, she makes the choice. If it's about the house, he makes the choice. If it's about... School stuff, she makes the choice. Groceries, she makes the choice. If it's about, like, I don't know, hobbies, he makes the choice. You know? and, and usually that tends to lead to the, to the wife making most of the decisions and the husband just becomes a child in the home. And he doesn't make hardly any choices anymore. That's the end result of that. And, and then he goes from being that knucklehead guy to being the super knucklehead guy. Because having never learned responsibility, he just gets worse. <laughs> So that's now speaking from people I've actually watched grow up, and you may have some examples in your own mind that you can think of. Um, but it is just not possible for them to, to be equal in, in decision making abilities. It's just not physically possible. Somebody will make the final call more often than the other person. It's going to happen. So <clears throat> I recommend flipping a coin or following what the Bible says, whichever one you think would work better. Um, the husband is the head. Now, Christ is the head of every man, the scripture says, and the man is the head of his, of his, of his spouse, of his wife. Meaning that if I am, I'm supposed to be sitting under Christ's authority, I'm not to be like the king of the hill and, and domineering and all this other kind of thing. We'll deal with husbands in a moment and how they're not supposed to be idiots. But let's, <laughs> that should be clear. But let's, let's suppose that we just give, take for granted the idea that the scripture is not going to be like, husbands, domineer and be a jerk. Like this is not going to be the biblical teaching to husbands. 
But the teaching to the bride is the husband's supposed to be under Christ's authority and the bride is supposed to be under her husband's authority. That this is, this is, the, this is a good thing. And I tell our students that if, if a girl's interested in a guy, but she doesn't want him making choices for her future children, she should not marry this man. This is a bad choice. But if she's like, no, I think this is, he makes wise choices. I would, I would gladly walk in submission to this gentleman. Then, then, ooh, that's a really good sign. You know, that's a really healthy sign. Well, unfortunately, uh, turn with me to Genesis 3.16. We have a problem. <laughs> All the problems of man started in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, and what is said specifically about the husband and wife relationship is really telling. In Genesis 3.16, God says to Eve, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your, and your conception. <clears throat> in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that's interesting. That phrase, it, it, there's a lot of debate over that. The desire for your husband, that just means she's really going to love her husband. N- no. Okay, loving your husband is not a result of the curse. <laughs> Um, in fact if you flip to Genesis 4 you'll see that God's speaking with Cain and he uses the same language when he tells Cain sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it meaning that sin wanted to rule over Cain like sin wants to domineer over Cain but Cain should have have control instead and so knowing that same language uh, in the Hebrew same language he says your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So that there will be, because Adam, you did not submit to me. Eve, you did not submit to me. So guess what you guys are going to have a problem with? Submission. It's going to affect the husband and the wife here. And it'll be a natural sin nature tendency for the wife to not want to submit to the authority of the husband. This doesn't mean there's something wrong with women that isn't wrong with men. I mean, if it was the other way around and men were submitting, they would have the same thing said about them. And you won't want to do it <laughs> because we have sin nature. We just don't like the idea of submission in our sin nature. Now, in our new nature in Christ, it's a different story. We see, I think we, I think we see the beauty of it. We see the goodness of it. But, but the, the issue started way back then. So that's the issue. And then God brings in with Ephesians and Colossians and First Peter and stuff, he brings in the beauty of marriage back into the story. And he says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. This is fitting in the Lord. This is a, this is a godly thing. It's a wonderful thing. So <clears throat> this wives being submissive, it applies, um, if you would turn back to First Peter, please, it applies to all wives. It doesn't only apply to, say, wives who have godly, Christ-centered husbands. It applies to wives who, according to this passage, have husbands who are unsaved or perhaps husbands who are, they claim to be saved or they at least seem to be saved, but they're not really following Jesus in their life. Let's read it again. First Peter 3, 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. Now, you wouldn't obey the word because you're either unsaved or you're just backsliding. That they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. In fact, not only is this for the wife who has the... Now, this is a monumentally hard thing. Okay, I I'm fully acknowledge this. Super difficult. But let's just be clear about what God's calling us to do. Especially if he's calling us to do something hard. Because our tendency will be to find a way around it. <laughs> but here it says that this is actually the best way to evangelize your spouse. Is with your example, not your lectures. 
Now, I give the same advice to husbands, too. I said the best way for you to evangelize your wife is not for you to lecture her about what she should do, but for you to be the example and then take your family into following the Lord. I mean, this is, you know, we, we always lead by going first, not by telling people where they should go and then following behind them as they do. But um, lectures tend to be somewhat ineffective, but examples are powerful. Lee Strobel's testimony of how he got saved, that came because of his wife's example. Um, and he was so fearful of her lectures, like he was just going to get all, if she tries to tell me I'm supposed to be this and that. But it was just her life changed in Christ. And then he just, wow, he started, he started to change. And he started looking into it and ended up coming to the Lord. Now, we have a lot of common excuses, I think, but they usually boil down to, for husbands and wives, but they aren't doing their part. Like, I would, but they're not doing their part. They're not doing their part, so that's why I can't. The scripture doesn't give us any room for that. It just says, do it unto the Lord. Just do it. Just walk in submission for husbands walk in love and, and walk in this self-sacrifice. Do it, do it, continue to do it, do it unto God. Do not look for others for the motive to do it in that selfish sense, but rather just do it freely unto the Lord. That is our calling. It is not easy, but Jesus never said, come follow me. It is so stinking easy. And I won't ask you to do anything that's really hard, but rather it's so hard because it's so valuable. I mean, anything in life that's really worthwhile is usually difficult. And marriage is one of those things. So at this point, I just, I want to go ahead and, now I'm not backpedaling here. (laughs) Because I feel like I've already presented pretty, just plain straight out there. This is the thing. When the bottom line is the husband makes the final call on issues, that's the authority position the husband has. That is the authority position he has. Now, if he's telling you, I mean, now if he's being abusive and things like that, then these, these, all, these what ifs come to your mind. They may already be in your minds. What if uh, there's abuse? What if there's a mental disorder? What if the husband's a drug addict? And, and he's, he's, uh, she's like, should I you know, take the money and put it in a safe bank account because he's going to take it all and spend it all on drugs and then we're not going to have to be able to feed the kids? And These crazy scenarios that come up. Now, granted, most marriages don't involve these scenarios, so there's just no what ifs. It's just walk in submission and obey God. But these do happen. And I do think God has actually given us a particular passage of scripture to help us work out those hard scenarios. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. As I was getting ready for this study, I was trying to think, where are there examples in the scripture where a wife rebelled against her husband and it was considered a good thing? Because that would, you know, when do we rebel? I think this is the one and only passage I'm aware of where that actually happens. Every other instance of a wife rebelling against her husband's authority, it's considered a bad thing. But here, she saved the day. And her name's Abigail, and we read about it. We're going to read a good chunk of scripture here. 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse 2. We'll read probably all the way through verse, I think, 35. So it says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So they would get all the sheep together for a big shearing thing. It was, a, it was quite a big production. The, the name of the man was Nabal, and, his, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. And Caleb was a good guy. This guy was a knucklehead. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel 
and Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who, who lives in prosperity, peace to you, peace to your house and peace to all you have. Now I heard that you have shearers, your sh- um, now I heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand, to your servants, and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Now, it just... You'll get more of this in just a moment, but just to be clear, David is on his run from, from King Saul at the moment. He's being attacked, but he's, he's a good guy. He's defending Israel. He goes around attacking the enemies of Israel and defending her borders and doing great things. He's, he's a protector of Israel. He's the next king of Israel. And his men protected Nabal's men as they were uh, watching over the sheep for a whole season of time. They were their guardians and they protected them. So it only makes sense that now he's going, you know, we asked for nothing during that time. But it's a feast day. We're hungry. We need some supplies. You have overabundance. Will you help us out? So it, it's fair what he's asking. But then here's the, here's the answer. Then Nabal, verse 10, answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from, from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? There's always a good reason not to give, you know. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. And then David flips out. <laughs> like, he really gets in the flesh, and he, he repents of it later. But he's, like, super angry because he's, the guy, like, dangled, it's sort of like the fruit dangled out there, like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, can you help us? Can you come over here with us? Can you help us with this? And then when the time came for him to help David out, he's just like, I don't care about you. And so David flips out. Um, and he was under a stressful time of life and all that and whatever, but... It was inappropriate. And here's his response. Verse 13. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man gird on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David. And 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master. And he reviled them. But the men were very good to us. And we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, no one consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. He is so stubborn and so hateful and mean that even though he's doing something that is possibly going to get him killed, everyone around him is like, I'm not even going to try and tell him he's wrong. Because I've learned through many experiments that you don't tell this guy he's wrong. The problem with people who won't be corrected is eventually they won't be corrected because no one will go to correct them because they've, tr- they've trained all their friends. If you want to be my friend, you don't ever tell me I'm wrong. But it falls on their own heads when their world falls apart and then they call you and they're like, I don't understand what is happening. And you're like, I'm not telling him because he'll get all mad at me instead of the person he's mad at now. And it is, this is exactly what happens here. So. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread. So she's going behind her husband's back now. Two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on, a, on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now, why didn't she tell him? 
he would have stopped her. He would have stopped her, and they would have all been killed. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all this fellow. He was in the wilderness, so that nothing... Um, Although that, excuse me, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. David was in a murderous rage. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, do not see, uh, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives... And as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. She knew about the prophecies about David. Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. She's very, very clever too. She's like, you wouldn't do wrong. <laughs> He's like, oh, I feel bad now. You know, and it's, it's, She's very wise and she's a very virtuous woman here. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from a, the pocket of a sling. She's speaking of Saul here. Saul was coming to kill him and she's like, God's going to take care of that. You're going to be delivered. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, to his response, he totally, totally gets him. He says, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And check out what he says. And blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. And if you'll read the Psalms, you'll realize David did not believe in avenging yourself with your own hand, but vengeance is the Lord's. And so he knew that his attitude was wrong here. Nabal was wrong and like we talked, flesh hooks flesh, right? And Nabal's wickedness hooked up to David's wickedness and he sort of called this down on himself and she totally changed it. Now, everything about this so far is, is in a positive context. Abigail's actions here seem to be presented in the way they're couched in scripture as a good thing. So verse um, <clears throat> um, 34 for indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting, from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in your place to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and have respected your person. And um, there's, there's more details there. Uh, Nabal hears about this and he gets so upset he dies. 
I think he had a bad heart, he had a bad ticker, and that just pushed him over it. And maybe the Lord just was judging him. And this is the cool thing is when David pulled off and didn't try to get vengeance, God took care of the vengeance. I mean, when we don't try to get revenge, God takes care of it. That's a good word to wives who are submitting to, to husbands, some of those husbands, you know, is that God can take care of that. But what do we learn from Abigail? I think that we learn this, that when there is a life-threatening scenario, the wife should do what she needs to do for the protection of her household, including going behind her husband's back, including doing what she needs to do for the protection of her home. This applies to like abuse, like scary abusive situations. It applies to insanity or a mental disorder. It applies to major drug issues. Um, there were There was a time when I was Growing up, we ran out of the house, got in the car, and tore off down the street. And even though my, my stepdad, who was the head of the home at the time, was yelling at us and politely asking us not to go while, while kicking in the fender of the car with a steel toe boot, it was the right thing to do to disobey his authority and get out of there because it was safety. It was a serious safety concern. So there is a time. There is a time, and there's actually a biblical precedence for it with Abigail. And I thank the Lord that he's put that in there. I think that that's neat. I think God just thinks of everything. <laughs> um, so, uh, and again, of course, if there's infidelity and there's grounds for divorce and the woman is no longer under the husband, then he has no authority. So, there, so there's, it's not even rebellion to not do what he says because they're not, if they're not married anymore because of infidelity or, or even just divorce in general, there is no authority anymore, period. But the rest of the time, Submit. That's a hard pill to swallow. That's a hard pill to swallow. And I don't pretend to have all the, the, the easy method and all that other stuff. But I do want to say this. That's clearly what the scripture seems to teach. I don't think there's really wiggle room here. And I have heard some, some sort of uh, liberal propaganda, liberal theology. I'm not talking about politics here. But a liberal theology propaganda that tries to suggest, oh, it doesn't mean that. It means this. And they're just doing gymnastics with words and with definitions of the Bible. And it doesn't take, I mean, if you want to believe what you want to believe, believe what you, you know, whatever. But if you just read the passage and look at it carefully, that seems to be what it says without qualification. So that means that submission has, happens when you don't agree. Submission happens when you could get away with it. Um, submission is just a super big deal. And I think that at this point, there are some who would think, well, I don't do that in my marriage, but you know what? My marriage is working just fine. To that, all I can say is this. A marriage can function with dysfunction, but that doesn't make it good. You know, it's, it's like the old saying, you know, someone goes, well, I was, they did that to me when I was a kid and I came out fine, so I'm doing it to my kids. And you're like, you think you're fine, but you can function dysfunctionally or we can follow what God's word says and say, Lord, I am not wiser than you. I'm going to do what your scripture teaches. Then it goes on in verse uh, 3. Back to 1 Peter. So we'll move over to verse 3. I want to get at least through verse 6. I'll move a lot quicker now because I feel like we've covered a lot of the, the basics of that. But, um, but here we are, verse 3. It says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with that incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So arranging hair, wearing gold, or fine apparel, that this has to do with nice clothing and, and jewelry, having nice clothing and jewelry. Now, some have taken this to mean that you cannot have nice clothing and jewelry as a Christian woman, that you're supposed to wear like, you know, like really unattractive or, you know, like basically like camel hair and, 
and you know, and sackcloth and ashes is pretty much Sunday clothing. And and this is actually not the case. In fact, read about the Proverbs 31 woman. She's actually decorated herself nicely. The warning here is to not let your adornment be merely outward. It doesn't say don't let your adornment be outward. It says don't let it be merely outward. Here's the real danger. The danger is the stereotype of the pretty girl who's really shallow. That's the danger. But there's a reason for the stereotype. (laughs) Because there is a tendency to put too much value on the outer things that causes a neglect of the inner person. And we've all seen that. That would be the perishable beauty. Proverbs 31 talks about that as well. It says in verse 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So beauty is passing. The the sad reality of beauty is that it's so temporary. It's just so temporary. The, 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 The hottest stars of today, later on, they're like all, you know, look at the stars who haven't aged well and like other mean things that they do to famous people. <laughs> but we, we, we just got to realize this beauty is passing. And so basically you have your time right now to learn how to not place too much value on that outward beauty. Or else when it passes, you will feel like your very person has been lost. This of course applies to men too, but it applies in a stronger way to women. But I know there are women's ministries who, because we send our children, our, our, our youth to the children's ministries, <laughs> children's, uh, women's ladies' ministries, ladies' events and stuff like that. And I always sit down and get a report. So what did they share? What did they teach? And sometimes it feels like you went and you went to this whole conference and all they did was every speaker got up, was totally dolled up with like the newest makeup and hairstyles and clothes. And they stood up there and were like, you're beautiful, girls. You're beautiful. You're the beautifulest of the beautifuls ever. Look at someone and tell them how beautiful they are. Now look at them and tell them, you're beautiful. Okay. All right, beautiful girls. Now go be beautiful. And you're like, what is going on? I think that that is vanity. I think that in the end, we're just, rather than saying, I have to look at every girl and tell her how beautiful she is. Well, I mean, I think girls are beautiful and they don't usually realize how beautiful they are. But this is not the point. This is not the point. The point is, we're not to place such value on outward beauty. That's the problem. And when the church places the highest value on outward beauty and then preaches it to the girls, they do damage to those girls. They don't help them. They harm them, I think. So we're told instead, God does not say, look how beautiful you are. He says, don't let your adornment be merely outward. Let it be what that hidden person of the heart Rather, it should be looking at someone going, wow, you were really patient. That's beautiful. Now, I use the word beautiful a lot with the students in our ministry. But I do it when when I see a girl, she tells me she was witnessing and she was sharing her faith with friends who then laughed at her and mocked her. And I said, you know what? When you were sharing your faith with your friends who laughed at you and mocked you, that was beautiful in the eyes of God. You were beautiful. I want them to know that's what beauty is. This is the inner beauty of the person, of the heart. And I think that... um, we, have, we need a, a paradigm shift, to quote our speaker from this morning. <laughs> In this area of not looking at beauty as a merely outward thing, but seeing the value of, the deeper value of the person of the heart. You know? Well, um, Proverbs 11.22 says this. I love this verse. I used to think of this when I was single, and I was, I'd look at a girl and be like, wow, she's pretty. And then I'd see her cuss or do something that I felt was like uncouth, you know? 
And it says, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. And I thought of this all the time. All the time. And I would just see a woman and, she, and I'd see a girl and be like, wow, she's pretty. You know, and you, you wonder, like, I wonder if she's the one. I thought that at least seven times a day, right? <laughs> she's the one? She's the one? She's the one? And, um, and then she'd say something inappropriate. Or, yeah, uh, and, and I'm like, I realize, oh, she, her heart's not for Jesus, you know? And I'd just be like, ring in a pig's nose. <laughs> Move on my way. And her beauty became ugly to me. And I thought, what a waste. What a waste that, 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 that such an outwardly pretty girl is on such an inwardly ugly person. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, this might sound, sound callous, but I do think that this is, in a way, how we should see things. It is, it is the inner person that matters more. It is the patience and the, and the love and the concern and care for others that is more beautiful than the makeup and the hairstyles and this sort of thing. If girls, you know, what if selfies were always selfies of, of people doing, like, good deeds? Like, picture me changing diapers for my mom, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it would be equally it would be equally self obsessed as selfies are, but at least it would be of quality things. I don't know. So, do we care more about our appearance or our character? That's the question. To not let it be merely outward. Um, and it says to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, those words are pretty cool in verse four. A gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle meaning a soft touch. A soft touch. So the gentle person's like not causing problems. They have that soft touch. We, me, and my wife, we saw. Um, Sylvester Stallone <laughs> over at this ch- chocolate shop. And we, were, we were driving around one day, stopping at a chocolate shop, and we're getting there to get some chocolate, and in walks Sylvester Stallone. There was a woman outside who had a camera, and she's like, click, 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 click. And he was irritated by her, so he walked, and he's like, hey, y'all, leave me alone. You know what? I don't know. I can't imitate him, but he closed the door. He locked the door and flipped the clothes sign over because he just wanted to be left alone. And then Allison's like, wanted to get a picture with him. And I'm like, okay, go ahead. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, yeah, I don't really, I'm cool, you know. So I photobombed it in the back. But she walks up to him, and she just gently touched his shoulder. Like, she waited a minute for him to talk to people and stuff. And then she walked up, just gently touched She goes, would it be okay if I got a picture with you? And he's like, you know, uh, he said, yo, Joe, Adrian. I don't know. I, I can't do it. I can't even think of what he sounds like right now. Get to the chopper. That's what he said. No. Um, so, so she gets the picture, and I photobombed it when we put it up. And it was, it was funny. But... But that was an example of that gentleness, you know, how she approaches. There was just a gentleness to her that is something that God looks for in a lady. He just, he likes to see gentleness. This doesn't mean she can't have a strong personality. You can have a strong personality and still have gentleness. The two are not, okay, and the word quiet here, um, it doesn't mean be quiet, okay? Gentle and quiet here, gentle means a soft touch, not causing problems, so you don't create issues where there aren't issues, like, this didn't have to be a problem, but you made it a problem. That would not be gentle. Whereas quiet, it doesn't mean be without noise. It means to be peaceful and restful, quiet like a, like a lake that is just calm. You know, and you walk in, there's, there's, there's just a flat, beautiful lake. Peaceful or restful. So gentle means not causing trouble. And quiet means not, um, or, or I should say, taking in stride the troubles that other people cause. That's what the quiet part means. It's like, you know, you hit... You, you, you attacked or you did something negative towards me, but I'm going to take it in stride. I'm not going to blow it up into something bigger. I'm not going to be gasoline on the fire. That would be the quiet, the quiet aspect. And I think that these together equal the woman who is not contentious, that Proverbs warns about so dangerously. Anybody who's contentious is a problem. I mean, contention is when I take something and I turn it into a bigger deal and a bigger problem than it has to be. That would be contentious, I think. And so gentle and quiet is the opposite of those things. 
Now, neither of these is presented as a quality women should have that men shouldn't have. These are both looked at as a good thing for men as well in Scripture. But God's highlighting them for women because he wants them to focus on these. Uh, and then verse 5, it says, For in, in, in this manner, in former times, the holy women of... Uh, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. They adorned themselves with what? That these good works. Being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So, ladies, you have examples to look at in the Old Testament. You should look for these holy women, the ones that you look and you read and you go, yeah, they're, they're presented as a good example. And look for keys on how Lord would have, the Lord would have you behave, just as guys, we look to the guys even more so. But there's this phrase. So, I mean, clearly submission here is obedience, right? It's the idea of submitting to the authority of. But Sarah called him Lord. Lord. Honey. Lord. I have a new nickname for me that you could use. No, uh, let me explain. The term Lord then versus the term Lord now. The term Lord now we never use for anybody. I don't think it would be appropriate for my wife to call me Lord because it's not the same word as what you're reading Sarah called her husband. Lord would be more like saying boss or person who, is, who, is, who has the final call, person, yeah, chief. That's what it means. It means I defer to you as the authority in this scenario. And you see it all the time. Someone will come and say, hey, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. But how often do you hear your husband say my Lord to his boss at work? In which case, you don't need to call him Lord because it's not the same word as what we're reading here. These are different words. Um, however, the point is, she acknowledged his authority in the household or he wore the pants in the family. And that is a healthy and good thing. This is a wonderful thing. And for this, I should say, husbands, take a cue. If you're not willing to wear the pants, you're failing in your calling. Because sometimes husbands force their wives to take authority because they drop the ball. And um, that's a whole different study. We'll get into that. Next week, we'll talk about husbands and beat up on them for a while. <laughs> now, critics of the, Bible, of, uh, of the Bible dealing with marriage make a few mistakes. One, they usually take a distorted view of submission. They act like submission is like submitting to abusive behavior um, or something like that. And I, I think it's clear that's not the case. They ignore the value and the necessity of submission. That's another, another thing they do. They ignore the quality of it. And they act like in some mystical world, like you don't need, nobody needs to submit. Everyone's totally has the same. Yeah, when there's only two people and neither of them is in charge, that's just a recipe for divorce. And then they ignore the rest. They ignore all of God's calling on husbands, which is incredibly, incredibly detailed and incredibly selfless and one-sided in favor of the wife. And that's what we'll get into next week. Um, but notice this. Critics of the Bible never talk about what God calls husbands to do. They quickly, vaguely reference the scripture about wives, and then they move as fast as they can away from marriage and the Bible, and then they rip on the Bible for the rest of the time, never talking about the calling on husbands. But this is considered not a bad thing. It is a precious thing in the eyes of the Lord, and we should know that marriage is exalting to God when a wife submits to her husband. I should say the wife is exalting to God, and the husband may or may not be, but she can still bring glory to him in the marriage when she does her part, even if he doesn't. Now, being a guy, I would have preferred to deal with husbands first and then wives second, so I could keep referring to how I beat up husbands first, but um, that's not the order in which it was dealt with here. So we'll get to it next week. Um, but I will say this, in marriage, what we need to do is realize is 
husbands and wives, is that marriage is not meant for your happiness primarily. Which should seem obvious <laughs> to those that are married. <laughs> marriage is meant primarily for the glory of God. And my happiness is a natural byproduct of doing it God's way. But if I go for my happiness, I don't receive it. I, I, don't, I don't end up usually getting that. Or if I decide that my happiness, if my happiness is the goal, well then, if doing the right thing in marriage doesn't make me happy, I stop doing it and I destroy my marriage. And more importantly, I, I, don't, I don't honor the Lord as a believer in Christ. And so um, that's all we have time for tonight. But, uh, but there we go. There's submission in marriage. That's not comprehensively on the topic. There's a lot more there. But I think, I think we can move on now to, um, to talk about the husband role, which I must say I know a lot better because that's the one I do all the time. <laughs> so let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, your word to us on marriages. And, um, and Lord, we ask this. Help us to not try to justify your word to a, uh, worldly ways of thinking, but rather to let our minds be washed of worldly ways of thinking so that we could change the world instead of trying to change your word. And this issue of marriage, Lord, it is a beautiful thing. This, this act, these acts of submission, it is a glorious and awesome thing. And you bring honor to your name through it, Lord. And, and we thank you for it. You've, you've showed us the key to how to make marriage work and how to honor you in it. We pray that we would simply do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for thinking biblically with me. I'm Mike Winger. And next time, husbands, you're on deck. And, oh, I'm, I am so blessed to be able to tell you this, this study, as of the time of recording this, this outro here, this study uh, for husbands has received over 30,000 views on YouTube and testimonies of husbands letting me know that this has impacted their marriage and it has changed things for them. So I'm just really blessed to know this, that the simple, clear teaching of God's word is transformative for our marriages, our lives, our spirits, everything. So um, let's, let's jump into it next week, getting a real biblical view for husbands to be like Jesus in their marriage. And until then, don't forget to check the context. 